It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, lots of cool pictures. That's Saturdays with Joy Keys. As well, we are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, uh, iHeartRadio, and here at Blog Talk Radio. So wherever you are, we are, leave us a note, message, follow, comment. We appreciate it. This morning, wow, you know, I have had a lot of doctors on, right? But this is a black female doctor. I've had some of those too. She's an emergency room physician. I have not had that. So this is a first for that. And she is now an author of a book, The Beauty and Breaking. It is a New York Times bestseller. So she hit it out the park by becoming a black female emergency room physician. And now she's hitting out the park with her book, The Beauty and Breaking. Good morning, uh, Dr. Michelle Harper. Good morning. It's wonderful to join you and your all your guest uh, participants here today. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know we talked earlier, this is like your day off for the medicine, yeah. but now you're working for the book. Uh, gosh, how are you juggling all of that? Um, ah. Do you actually have a day off? I mean, do you have a day off? <laughs> you know what? Now, uh, every once in a while, recently, yes. Not so much, but uh, it's, it's, it's an art. You know what? And that's why I do yoga. So it works out. Yes, you talk about that in the book, about how you are handling the stress in your life and getting balanced. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that. You're doing yoga and tell the audience you're also doing some other things as well. Uh, so my self-care ritual includes yoga as a regular practice, the physical asana of yoga, uh, certainly. And then I tune into the wisdom of, of people who are much wiser than me, that part of, the other part of my spiritual practice. I listen to people like Eckhart Tolle. I always say that the one benefit of my long commute to work is that, well, long for me because I don't like driving, I can listen to these audio books from spiritual leaders as I drive, um, walking meditation also, 
You know, I, I used to love going to museums. It's a little hard with the pandemic, so I, I long for it. But I, 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 I hope I can incorporate that again soon one day. That's mainly what I do. Yes, the museum. I used to take my daughter all the yeah. time to the um, Philadelphia Art Museum. Sometimes we just yeah. sit in certain sections. You could just sit there, and there's the little uh, little mini waterfall inside of there, um, and bookstores. That was also almost mm-hmm. like a meditation for me, um, going into a bookstore, looking through magazines, just sitting, reading, drinking some coffee or tea. Absolutely. Um, these are I things would... we're missing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I would go to, um, I would bring a book when I go to the museum, you know, to hit both, like some private reading time and watching art. It was one, I would even, since I'm in Philadelphia and it's so easy to get to New York City from here, I would just take Amtrak into New York City, um, hit some local museums there, and it was, it was fantastic. One day, one day again. <laughs> I know. Well, let's talk about this book. Wow. You really open up, I mean, like, if you want to talk physician, like, you cut us down the middle yourself. You cut yourself and open <laughs> up and let us see inside. How was your family's reaction to this book? I mean, did you tell them, or was it a surprise? What will happen with that? So it's interesting. I So part of my writing process is that it was very private. The only people who really knew about the book was my editors, truthfully. They were the only people who actually read it when I was working on it. Um, and that was important to me because I wanted it to be honest and authentic to me. I didn't want it to be potentially corrupted by outside influences it had to come from me and and it was very much a spiritual process in that way so as I was working on it because it is a a memoir of course and so it's it speaks about some of my personal experiences I thought about and and I'm sure anyone who writes a memoir it's the same process to what extent can you speak about other people's experiences while you're talking about your own life so whether it was um the abuse in my home, because I grew up with, um, my father was a batterer, whether it was that or my divorce or subsequent breakup, uh, my other significant relationship I've had thus far, it was important for me to tell my story and my experiences um, in a way that was respectful, honest. I didn't feel that I needed to sugarcoat anything, um, but it also... It wasn't meant to bash anyone either. So because I went into it with that intention, I was okay with whatever anyone's reaction was. If they didn't like it, that's fine. Um, So subsequently, the reaction has been largely positive for my family members. Um, So kind of mixed. I mean, my my mother initially was very upset and very concerned. but again, I was at peace with that. My, my take on it was whatever someone's reaction is, that's their own process, and I'm fine with it, no matter what it was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how about your colleagues? Because were you at all afraid? You, you open up some maybe dirty secrets of mm-hmm. the industry yeah. in the book that have some we probably knew, uh, people of color probably knew in a sense, but other stuff right. people might have been surprised. How, was, how were your colleagues' reaction to the book? It also, from people, I mean, I, 
I suppose the people I hear from, it's going to be self-selecting in that, in that way. It's really <laughs> probably, you know, I probably, because there are notably some people I haven't heard from. Um, for example, when I speak about in the book, how it's passed over for a promotion, who I'm sure there are listeners who haven't read the book or maybe aren't familiar with it. So I'll just briefly say um, when I was an attending physician, I, I was used to leadership. I wanted to, at that time, ascend the administrative ladder. I was getting kind of restless. I love taking care of patients. I also wanted to do more. I was searching for more impact, more meaning. It was at a time in my life before I was writing the book. Um, so I applied for a hospital position and then just waited, did my interviews, waited. And the day came when my boss was going to tell me the answer. And I thought, okay, for sure. This is when I find out how, how I want and I'm going to get the position. And he tells me I was super qualified. That wasn't an issue. And, and in fact, no one else had applied for that position. But the hospital decided to leave it open. They just weren't going to hire anyone. And then he said to me, I hope you stay anyway. I hope you stay. It's just that, as I've told you before, this hospital, they never promote people of color or women. So people of color and women always leave, but I hope you stick it out with me here anyway. Mm. I did resign. And shortly after um, I left, I heard the hospital had changed their mind. It was the perfect time now to hire someone. And they did. And it was a white male nurse that they hired. Now, I had a good mm. relationship with that um, director. I've never heard from him. I've heard from other people in the hospital. I do think, I do think the silence speaks volume as well. So, so I bring that up to say there are certain people, I mean, not only to illustrate systemic racism and misogyny in our field, but also it's, it's, it's notable the people I haven't heard from and many people I have are quite supportive. And I've heard from people I've known it from different parts of my career, um, mm-hmm. whether, it's, whether it's actually high school or grade school um, mm. all the way up through current time and, and people I don't know at all from all around the world who, who are, who are happy that I've, I'm helping to shed light on these matters. When is it time to let go? This is something that you mm-hmm. uh, talk about through the book. When is it time to let go of relationships, jobs, mm-hmm. um, maybe a lie in your mind types of things, um, even your patient? When is it time to let go? How does a doctor know that, like, exactly, you know? Because we would like to know that as people on the outside. <laughs> How hard are you going to push on my chest before you say stop? <laughs> oh, okay, so. I feel like there's, we could go so many different directions with that. I mean, there, there, when you bring up pushing on her chest, I mean, medically, there are times of you know, end of life concerns. <laughs> end of life concerns <laughs> when you make those decisions for yourself. But they do actually parallel. Even that has striking and important parallels in our life. Like when we talk about when is it time to let go, for example, of a relationship. Exactly, um, exactly. And mm-hmm. I, I actually think they're at, at the heart of that question is the same answer, like when it no longer serves. You know, when we think about end of life in the ER and like we're in a code and we're doing CPR, if there's no chance of meaningful survival, we get a sense of that. You know, if a body, if a physical body can go on, but it's essentially just a pod. 
it's no longer meaningful. Like, why let it persist? Now, when it comes to a relationship, it's the same. If it's just going to exist in name, what is the point? It is now holding you back. I talk about um, a painful breakup I had where I realized we were becoming bonded on trauma. And I had to look at that. Mm-hmm. If, if I, if the person, if we're not on the same path, if, if, if I'm not feeling that I am the best version of myself, again, I want to make clear, there's no human being, I don't care who that human being is, whether, and I, I know this might be difficult for people to hear, but I still maintain it as true, whether that person is a, a boyfriend, a wife, a child, it doesn't matter. There's no human being that is going to complete or fulfill another. That is inside work. But there are human beings that can hold us back from actualizing our highest potential. And if someone is doing that wittingly or not, then deep work in terms of reevaluation as to why I would put myself in that position needs to be done. That's what I maintain. Mm-hmm. In the book, you talk about a lot of different patients that you've spoken to maybe or worked on. Um, and two in particular um, that came up, one was a gentleman who had cancer and he was mm-hmm. okay with it. And he was like happy or at ease in a sense of like, this is where I am and I'm going to take it easy and spend a good time with my family, the, the amount of time I have left. And then there was another uh, young man who was just had so much anxiety and angst and um, you offered to help. You, you gave him so many different options and um, he, he just ran out. And you, you bring up this issue that contracts with themselves. Mm. Talk about this to the audience. Explain what, what does that mean? Yes. Yeah, so the older man who had cancer, um, he had it before. It, it came back. I was, I, I was meeting him when it was oh, a couple of decades, over 10 years later, and it had come back. But when it had come back, when I was seeing him, it was now widely metastatic. Um, the prognosis was really poor. So when we were talking about it, he expressed that he would go to his follow-up appointment. He wanted to know the treatment options, but also it, it in his model of the world, he didn't want to suffer. He was vegetarian. He, he wanted to feel good and comfortable in his body. Um, he knows that treatments for cancer, and he had done some before, can be very painful and cause a lot of suffering. So it was his personal choice that he didn't want to live that way. Um, and he was at ease and at peace. And at, his, his son and daughter-in-law had come to the hospital and he felt so much comfort and support by them. And there was a, a, a grace that he emanated that I found really inspiring. Um, that even in the face of this, there's so much in life we can't control. And they, all, you know, they always say, and it's, it's always right, the only thing we can control is our reaction to it. So under the most devastating, what most people would feel would be the most devastating circumstances, finding out, you have a terminal, you don't, you don't know what your time is, but it's a terminal diagnosis. Right. And still mm-hmm. 
there is an ease about you. You know, when I was with him in that moment, I thought if he can have, and still to this day, years later, if he can have that under those circumstances, surely, surely I can navigate my life when I don't have that diagnosis in a way that has some kind of equanimity. I can do that if you can do this. Um, And I discussed that story, I mean, not only as a demonstration of of, of equipoise um, and strength, but also that we can make these decisions about how we want to live and who we are. And that is, again, getting back. It's, it's always the same answer. You'll notice when you ask me questions, it's always the same answer. That it gets back <laughs> to, like, our idea, our understanding of ourselves and who, how we choose to live our lives. And that is the contract, whether it's him or um, that was in the same ch- chapter because I just I wanted to show kind of two ends of the spectrum in that way. A younger man, much younger man, who at the time had a, a critical illness. He was very skin infection. And at first he was very scared and was amenable to treatment, begging for us to help him. And we did, and we stabilized him with very strong intravenous antibiotics and fluids and pain control, and a surgeon came to see him, and he was going to be admitted to the hospital. But at that moment, when he was feeling better, we had done everything. We were going to admit him. He said, no, I, I have to go. I just have to leave. And there was, there was kind of excuse after excuse. It didn't make sense. And, you know, he said, oh, he had to go to court. And I was like, well, you know, can, can we do your paperwork here? We can help you with that. No, 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 but there's something else. But it really came down to was didn't want to be there. He didn't feel comfortable being there. He had other priorities that were not related to his health, to his care, and that was his contract, and it's not until he feels he was deserving of more that he could receive that from other people. And so two ends of the spectrum of who we feel we are and what we feel we deserve, and that's a personal decision. You know, it's um, easy said from you've done a lot of work, yeah. and you can tell in the book on yourself, and really delve deep into your beliefs and perceptions of things, what's true, what's not, what you can live with, what you cannot, mm. who you can forgive, who you can't forgive, types of things. You've done a lot of work, and you can see that in the book. And I think you're reaping the benefits of it, and that's why I think it is a New York Times bestseller. Um, I think that's mm-hmm. why you are probably a very good emergency room uh, physician. And uh, people like you, it seems, in the book. You, you talk about many um, <laughs> patients who like you. There are some that don't like her, trust me. So not, everybody <laughs> not, not, not everybody does. Not everybody does. So you have a balance. Um, right. uh, but there are a lot of people who haven't done that work, don't, don't even know how to, what's the first step, because they were never taught. You know, it's like, how do you know how to apply for, you know, a credit card? How do you know how to get an apartment? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you know where to go to get um, voter registration? We can think about those things. Um, right. I worked with some young men. I bring them up many a time, and they were between 13 and 18. They had never been to a polling place. Mm-hmm. I brought my daughter when she was a little kid many a times to the polling place, showed her the buttons, and I tried to explain to her what was going on. As she got older, of course, she knew. But when she was younger, she didn't know what that was. She just wanted to go into this place with mommy. 
can I go in here? And then, of course, the lady will be like, well, she can stay here. Where you go, mommy? You know, so, <laughs> of course, I, I will bring her in there. You know what I mean? Um, thank mm-hmm. hoping that she didn't press, you know, the Republican button by mistake. Um, but, <laughs> um, but anyway, so people don't know, you know, about that. We just had Veterans Day um, on Wednesday, and you dealt with a vet in the book and almost brought me to tears, this story that uh, focused around racism and sexism all in one person. Mm. Do you want to tell the audience just a little bit about this soldier that you had, a, um, I guess, a treatment session, you know, with you were evaluating yeah. her, her health? <sighs> yes. Um, another experience that's always stayed with me. And when you say brought me to tears, that's, that, that was one of the hardest stories for me to tell. And I don't want to say it's my favorite, but most closest, one of the ones that was closest to my heart, I'll say that. Um, so Miss Honor, a young black woman who I was, it was the end of my shift. It was busy. Um, and it was often busy and we were understaffed in the department at the veterans hospital. But I didn't want the night doctor to be so overwhelmed. It wasn't fair that he was going to be alone and responsible for all the patients in the ER and the backup of patients in the waiting room. And it wasn't wasn't fair to the patients either. So I thought, well, let me Mm -hmm. see a couple extra patients before I go. And so one was Miss Honor. And I thought it would be quick because she was in the psychiatric section of the department just there for medical clearance. It's it's common, especially in veterans hospitals, where a patient may be coming in to be just, to have a medical doctor say, okay, medically they're okay for, to go on to their group home or sobriety support group, um, and they'll just come in to get a, a quick check and a clearance right. for that. So that's why she mm-hmm. was there. She was getting sober. Um, and so my work was done. She was young and healthy. Literally could have been seven minutes from start to finish, and I was going to go home. But before I left the room, something was just gnawing at me. I, she had mentioned she had been traumatized, and I just felt if I didn't ask, maybe she didn't want to talk about it, but I felt I needed to ask because if I didn't, I would be complicit in her silencing. That's just what I felt. So hmm. I did ask her, and she did want to speak about it, and she mentioned how she was sexually assaulted overseas by her fellow soldiers. One was a colleague, one was a supervisor, and how she was healing from that. She was drinking to cope. Um, She didn't know how to now be here sober. Uh, And after they committed those crimes against her body, then they were also tried to ruin her career by... um, putting all kinds of false information in her file so that she wouldn't get her benefits. And she's subsequently been reassigned, um, and her, her new um, squad was uh, correcting her record. She had a new therapist also who was helping her. And we, we spoke about it. We spoke about the effect on her and how she was trying to heal. We, I felt it was important for me to tell her in no uncertain terms that what they did to her was wrong. It was important mm-hmm. for me just to say yeah. that and to listen to her and talk about, we explored forgiveness and how in this case, of course, we don't forgive their actions. What they did was heinous on every level, but somehow recognizing how 
broken and fraught they are, that part of their humanity, and forgiving that part, not their actions, but that part was important just to free herself so that she can move on and have the life she deserves. That's the point. Um, she did express that, that was a meaningful interaction because she hadn't really told the whole story, and I'm sure there was some validation of her humanity in telling it and, and recognition of potential, potential of healing um, moving forward. And what I didn't say to her, because I didn't think it was right quite the time, but I, I did say in my writing of it is that what they did to her not only was wrong, but it's by a system that allowed it and that we have to address the system. And, you know, you brought up a very important point when you were talking about people may not have access to information, they may not know how to do things, or it's also true, they may not have the capacity, like they are understandably entrenched in their own healing and pain that they can't fight the system at at the time and it's not a reasonable expectation, but it is for us to do. For those of us who may have the resources and may not be so entrenched in, in the survival mode at that time. It is our responsibility to fight the system on their behalf, to advance equity in that way in their behalf. It's also our responsibility, like you were saying, to bring resources to people who may not know. So, yes, there's a certain amount of work we have to do individually to take our own steps towards self-healing, towards educating ourselves, most certainly. But those of us who, who have more need to do more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, that key point about the person mm-hmm. just dealing with their stuff so they kind of can't get to the next point. I, I was um, listening to uh, what's what is her name Tara Westover. She was the, the young white lady mm-hmm. who I think was born in Utah. Had her family yeah. kept her kind of hidden and didn't go out and all this stuff. Anyway, she told this really crazy story which I didn't know. I hadn't read the book yet because I'm always reading other books for the, my show. But there was a key point yeah. in there about being in poverty, and in mm-hmm. poverty. Um, and what her upbringing told her is not to take anything from the government. It was evil money and this, that, and other. But she was working three jobs trying to go to school. And the Mormon pastor told her it's okay to take the Pell Grant. She couldn't, Mm -hmm. like, she was like, no, 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 I can't do that. That's too much money. Um, And what the the main point was people who are in poverty, and and, and we can use poverty uh, money, poverty emotionally, um, physically, right. whatever, we're in poverty, you're spending a lot of time dealing with the poverty. 80% mm-hmm. of your energy is working on trying to either keep it under lid, get some more money, you know, find housing, um, just, you know, be calm so you don't blow up and kill somebody else because you just got beaten right. up. I mean, you're taking all your brain power. So people yeah. sometimes look down on you like, why can't you just go do this? Why can't you just leave right. that DV situation? Why can't you just go get some, you know, um, can't you go swim in and do some therapy? When are you going to do that? You're working like this hourly job, job at right. um, McDonald's. You can't take off to get, you know, PT, OT, whatever mm-hmm. you need, a massage, a steam room. <laughs> you know, you talk about steam rooms. So people really have to understand right. that in poverty, People don't have the capacity, right? And they need a Pell Grant, quote unquote, to help. You know, so like you said, you have more resources. If you have the emotional capacity to take on somebody's pain for a little bit of time, do that. 
You know what I'm saying? If, if you mm-hmm. have monetary means, do that. You know, if you have a car, you drove somebody to, to vote, do that. Do what yeah. you can, you know, because other people are in a state of poverty and can't, right. they only got 15% to deal with this high thinking, you know, stuff. Right. Um, now, one I of the agree. funny stories. I... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I was just going to um, just agree with everything you're saying and then, and then also I always like to say, and advancing, because, you know, we're talking about structural bigotry, and then, and then addressing the structure so that people have a living wage so, and people are paid fairly. So hopefully no one should have to work three jobs. That's ridiculous. We, need, we need to address that in this country. Everyone should have health care so that their, their energy is not drained because they're sick or because they, they can't not be sick because they can't access health care. You know, if we, everyone has access to information, quality education, we have to address that too so that people aren't trapped by these structures that trap them. And those of us with the more resources, whether it's emotionally or financially or so that we have more time, I believe it is an imperative for us to do that. So there is less inequity. You know, people are always going to say, though, I put myself up by my bootstraps. Why can't they? Yeah. You know, yeah, I, mean, I did a, this and why of, can't they? <laughs> it's a little bit of a, whenever people say that, it's a little bit of a bizarre statement because there's so much. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. You know, I'm never going to pull any punches. I, um, because sure, every once in a while it, it's true. Every once in a while there are people who do that, but. More likely than not, more likely than not, the people at the upper echelons um, didn't. They were helped. I've I've yet to meet a person who just did everything by themselves. And a lot of them, there were structures to help them, like specifically gave them privileges to do so. So Mm -hmm. I I, I don't find that statement valid. And when people say that, I um, I would invite them to look at the advantages they've received that others haven't, and then to have more compassion in that way. Uh, that's, what, that's what I would say, that they've, they've benefited from certain privileges and other people should have access as well. I would also say, you know, we talked about how um, being impoverished, like, robs you of so much, and it does. It, I was doing research for this presentation recently, and mm-hmm. societies that have more inequity, actually everybody suffers. Like when we look at race, and, and the U.S. actually is like top of the charts when it comes to inequity of similarly resourced nations. When we look at healthcare outcomes at every level, when we look at rates of mental illness, substance abuse, like I mean, you can just look at anxiety and depression at every level. And in okay. people who have a lot of money and all the stars who are, addicted to substances or suicide rates, no one benefits from this inequity and they're not necessarily happier. And all of their time and resources are going into maintaining this inequity, maintaining their, the facade of their status. And they're not happier as a result. Like all the literature shows that. So potentially if they, if they did the work, they too would be more fulfilled and have more peace. All of us would. Mm. 
You know, that's like that fake news stuff, uh, Michelle. I don't know mm-hmm. where you're getting it. sounds like some scientific something, like statistical analysis something or other. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, well, there's that. Yeah. Now, let me let me ask you this. You know, I was looking at one uh, interview you did, um, and you were talking. There are only five of all the doctors in the country. Only five percent are African American or identify as black. Is that still true? And my, my follow up question is: How can we help get more doctors of color into the system? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at last, when I was recently looking into this. And it varies a little bit, but it was still roughly five, four to five black women. It's, um, it's like two percent. Um, so yes, very low, not representative. Getting back to issues around structural bigotry. So <laughs> all we have to do is end racism and sexism. That's all. And then oh, we would have more. Call me next Saturday. I'll have it. I'll have it wrapped up. I know a lot of people. I can call them. They can make calls. Right. It'll be like a tree thing. And by next Saturday, it'll be all fixed. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> That's what it goes. And then it comes to again structures. Like it's you know re- representation is important. Again, back to studies. All like the, the fake news. You know when when black children have black teachers, they're they're more likely to do better. Um, so we, we need access to quality education. There, there can't be so many, you know, going to medical school. Yes. If if there are certain grants, there's only a certain number of of grants for education, scholarships for education. Um, many of them have been undermined over the recent years, but there's only a certain number of, of funds that people can access. Getting an education to be a doctor is financially prohibitive. For most people in this country, most people, no matter your colors, it doesn't matter. Um, so that alone is, is a barrier. So there has to be more support for education so that people can do this work. And then, of course, an environment being hostile is a large barrier, too. There was, there's a student who I still keep in touch with. She's a black woman um, in college, wants to go into medicine, and she was working at a scribe in a, in a hospital I worked at. And during one shift, people were making all kinds of racist and disparaging comments. She started crying. She left her shift. She was a scribe, so she wasn't medically necessary. She ended up going home entirely. And she called me. Um, I, I wasn't working that day, um, but she she would often talk to me about matters in general in life and going into medicine. And she said, you know, I don't want to work there anymore. And this, this makes me question going into medicine. You know, so it's, mm-hmm. it's instances like that where how are we going to get people to go into this field when they're spending so much money, so much time fighting so hard to get there. And then when they're exposed to the field, they feel like they shouldn't be there. I mean, they're being traumatized in it. So mm-hmm. again, that gets back to, addressing the racism and having representation and is it less likely to happen if there are more people of color around um so it's not just like we were talking about before the show so it's not just the water and the air and the environment so people don't even notice what they're doing yeah that that has to be part of the change also Mm. so it's no there's not an answer we have to address it on all fronts and there will be change it's happening 
We just have to, you know, constant steady pressure. Yes, I agree. It's a constant steady pressure. Mm -hmm. And I think something I talked to you about earlier, it's like people complain. I think you just have to make a decision on where you can alleviate the poverty. If you want to use that, you know what I'm saying? Where can you alleviate the poverty um, and and just do what you can. You can't fix everything. Be able to make a phone call. You might be able to give money. You might be able to walk to the corner and talk to the girl or the boy that's on the corner, you know, doing something else other than, um, you know, selling Girl Scout cookies. Um, So I think that's every little step, micro, you know, meso, macro, there's something on any of those levels that people can do. I think you're doing it with this book. You're you're all over the place. New York Times bestseller. Um, You're going next to the Laura Bush book club. I mean, wow. Yeah. Right. Yes. That's this coming week, and I, um, I'm really looking forward to it. I have to tell you that um, my allegiance, and we were talking about this a little bit before, my allegiance is to the, the mission, the mission of, um, I refer to myself as an abolitionist, and what I mean by abolitionist is freedom on all fronts. People should be free from bondage. We should have equity, um, and the opportunity to advance and evolve. So whoever says, you know what, I, I want to have this discussion to advance that mission, I want to be part of that discussion. So when I heard from the George W. Bush Foundation and when they spoke to me and said that Laura Bush selected my book because it speaks to many topics, but also specifically racism, and her feeling that we need to talk about racism and advancing mm-hmm. equity. And she wanted to bring that to her platform and the people who are generally on that platform. I said, yeah, that's my mission. So let's do this. Yeah. Let's move forward. Yeah. So yeah I'm, I'm, I'm I think that's great. That. Yeah. Well, I hope you have a good time there. I'm sure we'll read about it, hear about it, because people will be like, what? She did what? I know. Why are you wasting your time over there? Come on now. I know. This is what we talk about. You going over there, being a little house Negro, talking to those people, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. You know people will come all kinds of stuff. But anyway, I think it's great. Like you said, what is your intent? <laughs> what is your, you know, what is your center? And, and, and are you moving with that through the universe? Right. And usually I tell people when you're moving – on the path that you're supposed to be, the universe rises up to you and it has with this book. You are on the path. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You know, Um, I want to thank you for coming on the show this morning, Dr. Michelle Harper, emergency room physician, black female emergency room physician. Um, And let me tell you, black doctors make a difference. My daughter was born with a black OBGYN. My PCP mm. is a black doctor. I have been very fortunate. And I will tell you, there are differences being, by being treated by a physician versus a white physician. And not saying that mm-hmm. all the white physicians that I've had have been negative. No, that's not the case. I've had some very friendly ones. But then there's some others I've had to call. Like I've had to make quality reports through the health insurance company. Okay? So having a person of color, somebody that looks like you, uh, maybe somehow familiar with what you go through every day when you walk through the universe is very helpful. So thank you. Thank you for, for being thank who you, you are. Uh, I wish you much success with this book and please remember to take a day off. Self-care is important, yeah. Dr. Harper. Yeah. 
Thank you. It was so fun spending time with you. I feel like we could have talked so much longer. This flew by, and it was delightful. So thank you. All right. Thank you. You have a wonderful weekend. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just want to let you know you can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Twitter. And why? Because I'm going to be giving a copy of The Beauty and Breaking away. So you want to follow, see how you can win, um, and and don't sleep because <laughs> you won't see it. <laughs> also take care of yourself. It's getting cold. We're getting flu. Did you get your flu shot yet? You want to get your flu mm-hmm. shot. You want to make sure you continue to wear your mask and wash your hands and stay six feet apart. It actually is scientific. I can show you a video where they show the particles that are shooting out of your mouth as you're talking. And then even more so, if you sneeze, they go further. So that's why they say they're six feet apart. So please try to take all the steps you can um, to take care of yourself. Corona is real. It does kill people, but you can try to stay alive if you follow some basic directions. You guys have a great weekend, and I will see you next weekend. All right. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.